Welcome to Founder Views. My name is Costa. I'm your host and co-founder of Web for Realty, a SaaS company that I bootstrapped out of my parents' basement with no money and no tech experience into a fully remote company doing seven figures in ARR. I'm taking you through my SaaS journey in real time as I talk about business situations I'm going through, thinking about, or just find interesting. My purpose is not to give you the answers, but to spark something in your mind that can help improve your business along the way. All right. Hello, everyone. Today on the Founder Views podcast, I'm speaking with Segi Eliyahu. Segi is the CEO and co-founder of Tonkin, a no-code automation platform that helps companies solve their operational inefficiencies and business problems. Uh, Tonkin recently raised their 24 million Series A, led by Lightspeed Venture Partners, bringing the company's total fundraising to 33 million. Uh, Segi, welcome to Founder Views. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Costa. Happy to be here. Awesome. So I um, guess we want to kick things off. Uh, there's definitely a lot I want to get into and unpack, but tell us a bit about yourself, your background, and what Tonkin does. Absolutely. So I uh, started Tonkin about uh, four and a half years now. Um, in my uh, past uh, career, I was VP engineering on a public company, software company, I had the opportunity to grow teams and operations from handful of people to um, over a few hundreds. And so I had a lot of experience on both, you know, the engineering classic type, but also the operation side of things. Um, previous to um, to start my career in, in, in the high tech, I was uh, in the Israeli army uh, in the intelligence unit for four years. Um, and just in general, you know, I've been doing technology and trying to solve problems since I was uh, a young uh, kid you know I've been writing code since I was 10 years old kind of thing um, so that's uh, you know that's a little bit about myself Tonkin is uh, really the, uh, the the idea that comes from that col- collision of experiences I had you know being uh, VP engineering in one hand and caring about technology and how technology can be leveraged um, uh, to its fullest, but at the same time trying to, you know, be uh, leading a team, growing an operation, working cross-functionally within an organization, uh, I felt like there's a gap. I felt like there's a, um, there's a, there's an area in enterprise business that we're actually not leveraging technology enough, and that's on the operation layer. Um, and so long story short, I started talking to trying to help solve this by providing operation teams and business operations in general this abstraction layer. We call it the operating system for business operations. But as you described at the beginning, it's a no-code platform that enable non-technical people to actually leverage technology to solve complex problems. So bridging really the gap between business um, processes and the traditional IT and engineering. I love it. Thanks so much for sharing that. It's one of the main reasons why I was interested to speak to you because I'm more of an an operations uh, person myself. Um, So definitely... Uh, caught my interest are you are you a coder by background developer or yeah i used to write code uh most of my career before i sort of moved to management um all right and, uh, perfect um so you said tonkin is about four and a half years old yeah almost five actually um, almost five up. yeah okay so so you just raised a 24 million uh series a is that right that's correct yeah very nice um 
so I, I, and so that, that total fundraising 33 million uh, what was that process like raising raising that kind of sum of money uh, <laughs> coming from a bootstrapper like myself uh, you know a lot of that's foreign to me so yeah no it was foreign to me too we we were bootstrapped at the beginning uh, um and uh it, it's funny when you think about no code low code you start to hear that more right now think about automation when you think about um sort of like what is the next round of uh innovation within enterprise those things comes up um more and more recently but five years ago you know and i, and I like to say that i've been singing this song for five years now you know five years ago no one actually you know sort of understood what i want and definitely not give me money right and so there was uh there was a lot of no's and a lot of back and forth and a lot of you know twists and turns we took uh along the way uh, but really two years ago is kind of where we um, found our, um, our, our sort of our way in, if you will. But really a lot of it was also the market um, meeting us in the right time. And so we were able to raise uh, a hefty seed as well of uh, 7.2 million. And then a year later, um, capturing customers and revenue and, and really starting to see the um, sort of like the, the graph you know, tilting the right way, um, we had uh, the, the the great opportunity to work with um, the likes of Lightspeed and have them lead around. Um, so I'm very lucky, especially with from a timing perspective, especially with uh, with the cor- coronavirus. You know, it was like really at the beginning of the, the you know, it was in March. Um, so um, so yeah, it's it's very different type of set of challenges now and 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 but very exciting to kind of get to that point where we know that we have something that we can scale now that's amazing congratulations that's uh that's that's quite something for sure um so so a couple things just just on the surface about your business so how big is your team uh so we're um just across the 55 employees 55 and are you, are you guys all based in in san francisco or uh no so the company is almost half in israel in tel aviv um it's where the r&d is and then the business is in uh in in the west coast mostly in san francisco but um you know especially because we raised the a just you know just beginning of this year a lot of the growth in employees has actually happened during the pandemic and, um, you know, it's bittersweet because uh, it allowed the, the, the good part is it allowed us to um, hire great talent from a lot of places that we might have not considered hiring uh, otherwise. Um, and then the bitter part is obviously, you know, some people I've, ne- I've never met in person yet, <laughs> which is, you know, uh, kind of strange. Um, but, it, you know, it's a silver lining there. I, I can relate. My, my company's fully remote. We've been remote now for about f- almost five years and half the team members I've never even met face to face, but as crazy as it sounds, like even still we've built this very unique, this very family like culture, uh, which is definitely possible still being remote. So I'm sure you'll, uh, you'll experience that if you haven't already for sure. Um, did you think you'll, you eventually go back into an office setting or are you already sort of in an office right now during the pandemic yeah we have we have space um that in places that allow it you know people can go in but i think uh i think in general and especially for us i don't think it will ever 
go back to how it was, you know, it's where it's like you, you either remote or not remote. Yeah. I think reality will just going to be, um, as flexible as, as people choose. But I do believe in the ability to meet together, even just, even if it's just from brainstorming reasons, you know, there's something about the energy that is really hard to replicate. Although, like you said, uh, it's, it's very much doable and you can, you can have a very successful business and companies uh, fully remote. So it will be interesting to see the balance. I personally very much uh, enjoy um, taking walks with people, you know, sitting and, and sort of ping-ponging ideas. So I definitely miss that. Yeah, no, I hear you for sure. So um, let's talk about Tonkin here. So, you know, you deal, a lot of your clients are, you know, some big names like Salesforce, for example, uh, from what I can see on your website, uh, you know, Microsoft. Um, so I'm assuming your, your target customer is more like enterprise. Is that the segment you're in? Yeah, we're, uh, that's sort of the move we did two years ago that I mentioned. We, um, our product is actually started as, as self-serve bottom-up. And so there's a lot of um, ease, ease of use and um, uh, UX mindset that we have sort of ingrained in it. Uh, but then we uh, found that the bigger problem of operations or um, sort of like the more mature segment that has a real impact that you can create a real impact very fast uh, is, is upper market. And that's kind of the shift we did two years ago, um, beginning of 19. So almost two years ago and, uh, and, and moved upper market. So most of our, or, or all of our customers in the last two years are really the, fortune 100 type of, uh, companies. Okay. Wow. Um, can you walk us through like, you know, so when you sign up a company, let's just say like, like a very basic use case of, of how like a Salesforce uses Tonkin, just so people understand sort of what you, you provide exactly. Yeah. So I I want your specific like real customer, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example that is sort of like more general, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but aligns with, with what our customers have. When you think about operations um, and how technology is used, there's really um, three ways we use technology today, or, you know, we're trying to solve problems um, in operations. First option is to buy a new application. You know, you have a process that is broken. Um, let's say your contract uh, it takes too long to review contracts, right? Everyone needs contracts. You have sales, you have legal, you know, and you're like, okay, I need a better way to um, handle those contracts. The first thing people do is they go online and search for a contract management system. Now, sometimes that's actually what you need. Maybe you have, you know, it's not organized. You need a better, um, you know, privacy control and, and, and so on. Um, but in most cases, that's not actually where the inefficiency goes. And so we end up with buying another app and another app and another app that tried to solve uh, gaps in, in our process. And we we end up with multiple applications that has multiple UI, you know, interfaces that people need to jump between Chrome tabs, you know? And so um, that does very little to uh, how sales, for example, work with contracts. They don't, they don't need the, they don't get any value from that contract management system. Now for them, it's an extra step. They need to remember the URL to fill a form and all that stuff. So they're not going to do it. So they continue to do what they always do, which is sending emails to legal at company.com asking for the NDA. 
So you, build, you, you, you buy this you know, expensive contract management system, but it doesn't actually fit the way that your business and, and different people within your process work. So the second option is, oh, let's uh, build something. Let's have a custom uh, solution, homegrown solution, either by engineering or IT or external you know, engineering. And that's very expensive, takes a long time. And, as, as, and again, uh, create this bottleneck between your ability to adapt and, and fit to what you, the, the process is. The last option, which is the worst, is to change management, to basically change the behavior of people and force them into a new process. And that's sort of like the least fruitful because people has really their, something I like to call personal ROI. Right? We always talk about the ROI for a company, but there's a personal ROI that each of the people that are involved has. And nine out of 10, they won't be aligned with the ROI of the company directly aligned. And that's where the gaps comes in. So when you think about Tonkin and how that fits here, it's almost like providing the fourth option. And so we are, we are allowing the operation teams to create and, 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 and orchestrate the, those processes um, with zero code, with absolutely no code, um, and define their own sort of business logic on top of the systems they already have and on top of um, the communication channels they already have. So if legal want a um, contract management system to organize and have better sort of retention and control over the, over the files, but sales doesn't know this and, and doesn't actually need that. They want to continue sending emails to legal or Slack or Microsoft Teams, or maybe you know, even just sit and stay within their CRM. They can do that because the operation teams can then build in Tonkin um, a workflow, what we call a module, that really orchestrate that. So it would connect to all the different systems. It would connect with the contract management system, to the CRM, to Slack, to email, and allow them to build, um, again, drag and drop, no code, the process that they care about. For example, if there's a contract request, um, then automatically sort of send it to the right place or even be proactive about it. If there's a uh, deal that is about to close, automatically reach out to legal or automatically generate files and documents and, and start an approval cycle. So that sort of human-centric processes, this is where Tonkin um, brings uh, a lot of value into those bigger uh, accounts, especially with their ability to then maintain and control the logic within um, the operation team. Uh, and the last thing I'm going to say there is, and that's kind of where the bigger enterprise comes in, um, we're very we're we're very cautious and conscious, uh, I should say, about what does it mean to play in the enterprise, All right? So I like I, I mentioned, me and my team actually original team came from the intelligence unit uh, in Israel. Um, we know security, you know, we breathe security. And then my um, my uh, VP engineering role was in an enterprise company that sold for enterprise accounts, and so we actually built Tonkin from the ground up to be enterprise grade and uh, and we see this back. So we actually, IT loves us because we keep the control in IT, but enabling and empowering the operation team to be uh, self-empowered. Love that. Thanks so much for that that detailed breakdown. It makes a lot of sense. So, so that's, that's very impressive. So this is all, you said, self-serve. So it, it's really... Um, so someone can can do all this operationally by themselves um, without you know Tonkin coming in to customize any yeah. solutions, right? 
Correct. Very cool. Um, all right. That's great. Do you share how many uh, like clients you have or revenue numbers at all? Um, not yet. Um, we do have, uh, um, I can say we have over a hundred customers um, and um, a big, uh, a big jump in the size of the companies, like I said, in the last two years. Um, wh- what I think is interesting is that uh, our, our biggest sort of point of added value comes from replacing custom code, funny enough. Uh, so a lot of the problems we help companies solve is not necessarily something that can be solved with any other uh, vendor. And, and it's more of like, oh, instead of spending money and energy and resources on building a custom solution, uh, why not try something like a no-code uh, operation platform to really uh, enable those operation teams to build it themselves and maintain it themselves? And so you can understand from that a little bit the sort of like um, the, 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 the alternatives are extremely expensive. And, uh, and where you actually need it is in those bigger companies that actually have a lot of engineering resources, but they shouldn't and don't want to spend those resources on internal processes that keep on changing. Right. Okay. So if I were to make a guess, I'd say the, the sales cycle, um, in your product is, is kind of lengthy, like several months. Is that correct? Um, I think, so what's interesting, the short answer is yes, but I think what's interesting is that it's, uh, it's, a, it's definitely a new approach that comes, you know, it's, it's a very specific point of view and um, comes as, a, as a, a new way to think about how to leverage automation. And automation as a wave have grown significantly in the last five years, you know, RPA and integration platforms. And so... We definitely see that sort of educational part of the sales cycle of, you know, finding and, uh, and enabling the, those um, that we communicate with on how to think about this, how, you know, how to uh, align with existing projects and plans that they have. Uh, but it's almost like there's a moment where, you, you know, they get it. And then from that, it's actually extremely fast. Okay. Sometimes, you know, within three weeks, we can, we can, um, you know, um, bring on a customer that is huge and usually takes months. Um, and really what takes time is that sort of navigation of, Oh, now I get it. Right. right? So it's right. very interesting. It's a very interesting challenge because it's, it's, it's slightly different than a, a tradi- what we're finding is it's slightly different than a traditional sales cycle with enterprise. that takes long because of security and, and procurement. And that's still true. But there's, there's that sort of education. And yeah. some companies, you know, it's really, really quick. They get it. I, I could totally see that now that you say that. So you're waiting for that moment almost where, where the customer sort of has that aha moment where like everything just like, you know, comes into place and makes complete sense. So, so that, that's interesting. Um, how big is the sales team at your company? Um, so we were actually had zero or one sale person in the beginning of the year. Oh, wow. um, and so we grew that uh, relatively fast. And so um, I think the sales team all in all is about 15 now. Okay. So, so the educational part of the sales process then, is that more like through content? You're putting- A lot of it is content. Um, if, uh, 
you know, if you search a little bit, I've, I've, I've been doing a lot of, uh, I've been writing a lot of things. I've been doing a lot of, you know, podcasts and, and, um, and, uh, interviews and, and, you know, trying to, um, spread the word of what it actually can look like when we have that sort of, um, next level of, um, of, of enterprise software and how, how it looks when you have a, a world where, um, more people can leverage technology to, um, to, to solve problems and not only people that can code. Right. So there's, there's a lot of that. Um, but then there's, uh, but then there's, a, there's also a lot of specific, um, operational challenges and areas that we focus on. So revenue operations, legal operations, finance operations are things that we're, we find a lot of success, um, some somewhat because they're a little bit more um, further along, if you will, as as a methodology, as as um, as a practice, but also because they're very human centric, and so the impact and value of what we do is easier to to understand. Is easier way to create examples and and, and repeatable use cases. Um, but as a whole, I think um, it's really a gap of imagination. And uh, and really open open up sort of like thinking outside of, of what you got used to. So many problems um, in our life today. By the way, both personal life and work life. We don't even imagine what's possible until it's possible, and then it's obvious. Yeah, you know this area was like just for years, for years, over years. You know coordination and following up with people and, and nagging people to, you know, get status or understanding where things at. It's just been done over email and, 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 and meetings and, and that type of handoff between departments or follow or back and forth between departments is not even th- something that people imagine as something that can be automated or, or use technology for. Yeah. And so that is, you know, in short, the, that imagination gap almost of what's possible, the art of what's possible is kind of where a lot of the education goes to. Interesting. So there's like a no code, uh, like revolution sort of happening. It's sort of like a big, you know, buzzword in the industry now, like no code There's a lot of apps, popular apps coming out. Uh, or are out already and just growing. Um, how how has this like quote rev, no code revolution uh, benefited Tonkin? Uh, I'd like to think that you know we we helped with it a little bit too. Um, but I think there's uh, I think there's there's some important distinction um, that every time there's something new, you know, it's it's you know it's a lot. So so we kind of group together few things. Um, and I think they're all relevant and they're all super valuable and they're all part of that. Like you said, this bigger revolution, uh, but there's some distinction there that I think will help, you know, um, in general, when, you know, when you're trying to think what's the value of everything, right? So I think, for example, no code and low code, a lot of times is being said almost, um, at the same sentence, right? Uh, well, in fact, it's completely different. Low code means that you still need to write code, but it really abstracted a big part of it. So it's really for engineering and technical people to just do things faster, yeah. right? Well, no code um, is basically saying you can build those things or create those um, capabilities without writing any code, 
right? So it's really enabling a new type of people that couldn't have leveraged those technologies before to leverage those now. And then on top of it, there's another distinction that I, that I like to make of like where talking is a bit different. There is app development or app creation, application creation, low-code and no-code, where you can you know, drag and drop and create a new sort of application, just like an iPhone app, right? But in business, it might be HR app or you know, requesting for time off, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, while there's also the uh, where Tonkin plays is the ability to create process orchestration no-code, which means there are actually no app that comes up and at all. It's just something that happens in the background. And I think this is interesting because coming from an engineering background um, and software development, there's so much that, that, that software can do more than, um, than, than people that are not, you know, in that space can even, like I said, dream or realize and enabling parts of, um, the society to be honest, um, but definitely parts of the business that could not have, uh, leveraged those capabilities, create that abstracted abstraction that allows them to do it will open tons of innovations and progress that we can't even imagine ourselves. Uh, you know, if you think about iPhone, if you think about even Microsoft windows, you know, the, those operation systems really created this abstraction layer that allows that sort of like, um, lowered the barrier of entry of who can build software. So instead of, if you look at Microsoft, instead of coding means you have to code for every different, uh, CPU processor. Now you can just code for windows and windows would, you know, make transition in an iPhone, creating an app, you know, any teenager can go out, you know, and create an app. That's why we have, there's an app for everything. Right. Uh, so that type of abstraction and that is the promise of no code is what's exciting here. It's allowing people that couldn't have uh, access to this now capable of building things themselves and think about things that we, we can't even imagine. Yeah. You know, makes a lot of sense. And you pretty much answered the, the next thing I wanted to ask was, um, sort of about no code. Uh, like you said, I feel it's one of those, uh, terms now that, that almost get thrown around pretty loosely. Uh, and you made the distinction between like no code and low code. So, um, you know, thanks for breaking that down. So one thing you, you talk about a lot, and you touched on it sort of vaguely here, is um, the, the, making a case for, for people-first automation in SaaS. So, so can, you, can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so I think it comes back to that sort of original point of, of the personal ROI versus you know, the company ROI and so on. And the moment in which sort of I felt this idea of, you know, Tonkin is an idea worth pursuing and, you know, leaving my job, very good job, you know, and, and start a company um, is really when I realized a fundamental flaw of enterprise software, which is business processes are actually not about data. They're about people. All of the enterprise software that you can think of is actually about data. It's about moving information around, capturing information, digesting information, organizing information. And it makes sense because that's what the digital revolution was. 
right? It was taking data from piece, you know, piece of paper and put it in a digital format that then you can store and, and so on. Even the cloud originally was really about moving data from servers that you need to manage yourself into, you know, a data center that is in the cloud, you know, quote unquote. And so the, 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 the use of technology within, uh, within work or for, for enterprises was really about data, but the actual business process are about people. And when you realize that, uh, it makes all of a sudden so much sense of why we have all this fancy technology, so many applications, so many, you know, better, which is better environments than we had, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, yet still, and I think it's a survey from last year, the average knowledge worker spent only 2.8 hours a day of high value work, only about three hours a day of high value work. Everything else is low mundane copying stuff, trying to find the tab, trying to find, you know, like doing those things that are almost like uh, 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 problems of our own creation. And it's because all of those systems are not designed for me as an individual in that process. They're designed for the value that the company, quote unquote, or the process is, is built for. So the idea of people first is, is this concept that we came up with is people first process design, which is actually just saying, think about the requirements of the process in parallel, side by side, what are the requirements of the company and what are the requirements of the individuals, people that are in it? And where automation comes into play is that when you understand that, then you can also understand what are people, specific people or personalities within this process, what are their skill sets? What are they good at, right? If you're a salesperson, you really, it's all about the, the, the relationship builder and, and the communication with the customer. And capturing the information, keeping it up to date, uh, making sure the CRM is there, working with internal legal department, all that stuff. This is, or finance, this is not actually why you get paid as a salesperson. Um, and this is, but that still takes 60% of your time, which is ridiculous, right? Similarly, you know, an engineer is all about, you know, writing code, building software, and making sure it's, it's, it's well-designed, well-executed, um, and well-tested, yet they need to spend so much time on documenting, on um, updating you know, tickets, and, and so on and so forth. So how do you take the, the, the fat you know, around the, sort of the core and allow people to focus on the things that they're good at? Um, that's sort of the concept of people first um, process design, people first automation. It's automating things around the people versus expecting the people to change their behavior to fit the narrative of the um, company process. That, that, that's amazing. That uh, makes a lot of sense. And that's a crazy stat. You said what, just over two hours a day, the average person spends on like high productivity work. Yeah. High value work. Yeah. I, wow. That's, uh, that's really it's something. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's, that's, you know, that's the, the drive for me and, and a lot of people that are joining the company is what will hap happen if we can make this higher or take yeah. away a lot of that low value work. Sure. It means that you can do more, um, 
right? And companies can be more uh, effective and, 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 and move faster. But maybe it also means that you can work less because mm-hmm. your actual uh, throughput is higher. And I think this year, I obviously didn't plan for it, but this year made it even more clear that, you know, spending time with your family is a better, a better time spent, right? And so yeah. if I can trade, if, 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 you know, if you usually supposed to work, let's say eight hours a day and you only work, only 2.8 of them are high value work. If you make it four hours, high value work, even if you remove the other four and spend time with your kids, you're still doing double the, the throughput of what you we used to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. The impact of society can be big too. So that, that's kind of where it's, I take it personally, more than just, you know, helping companies do more, it's actually ha- going to have a direct impact on how we even define work and definitely how much um, hours a day and, and how work-life balance can look like. I, I totally agree with that. And that resonates with me so much. Uh, in the last few months, uh, my company, we, we started experimenting with a four day work week for, for similar reasons, as you just mentioned, right? The whole concept of um, working four days, you're going to be much more productive, uh, knowing that Friday off, you know, that you have to be productive in those four days. And in the last quarter, we actually had our most, um, you know, productive quarter, highest grossing quarter, like everything was, was amazing on, on, on four days. Right. And it's just like, it's a cycle, right. And the more productive you are, the more time you spend with family, the happier you are, which results back to more productivity at work. And, and it's just a very positive loop. I find. Yeah. So. I believe it. It's, uh, it, it really is how we are wired as people. You know, we're the most adaptive, flexible thing in nature. Yeah. Um, and so we'll, you know, we'll adapt to, uh, to the environment. And so if there's more time that we're supposed to work, we'll fill that time. It doesn't mean though that that's the most efficient way to do it. Exactly. Exactly. No, that, that's amazing. I love that. Um, so, you know, another interesting concept, uh, which, you know, coming from, from someone in SaaS, you know, you say like no more SaaS apps, you know, you, you <laughs> said a few times um, in maybe previous talks that a lot of SaaS apps are absolutely useless. So, so talk about that. What does that mean? <laughs> uh, it's true. I think a lot, a lot of, a lot of SaaS apps are actually uh, has very low ROI to them. Um, and I think it comes from, you know, when it's very easy to, what SaaS brought to us, the cloud notion of cloud application, it brought the, the, how easy it is to bring a new application, right? And the problem is that that created uh, an incentive for a, a huge industry to emerge to build more apps, right? Because if people want to buy more apps, then you build more apps. Uh, but the reality is that most people, when they, when they bring a new vendor in, even again, personal life and work life, the same, they're trying to, they're trying to solve something very small. Um, they have one, you know, issue with one process and, you know, this one thing, or you need this one report that, you know, the, the current vendor doesn't have. They usually that would be like, okay, too bad kind of thing. Right now we have a lot of SaaS application. There's probably something out there that can give you this report. And so you'll buy, you'll end up buying this new application just for this one report or just for this one logic. 
And so you're not using 90% or 80% of what this vendor um, do. But this vendor is, and, you know, venture community and so on, are really pushing um, startups and companies to create more revenue and therefore have more seats and, and so more users and so more features. And there's a misalignment between uh, what the company and, and the individual is um, goals are and what the vendor's goals are. And that's why you end up with, uh, I, that's another crazy start, stat. I think uh, on average company, companies has, or the individual worker has access to and, and work with 280 apps a week. It's a ridiculous wow. number um, in, in their work. And, you know, some of them are very, you know, very much core applications, but there's, then, then there's a, a long tail of applications that you just use, you know, randomly from time to time and only use a, a small fraction of them. And I think when you think about going back to the previous point, right, of people first design, right, it's instead of looking at um, the building blocks of our day as a fragmented, you know, a group of technologies that doesn't talk to each other, that doesn't have a co cohesive view of what my work is all about, um, then we end up with a lot of SaaS applications and a lot of them that um, people find themselves need to replace in six months or a year because they didn't actually deliver on the promise because they really just helped with this small tiny thing um, but charge you for the entire capability for a good reason from their side. It's just not aligned with what the customer needs. Yeah, and you know what? I think any SaaS founder or person in SaaS would be lying to you if they said they're not guilty of that in some yeah. way. Um, you know, I know I am. One thing I tell everyone, like I do it every maybe six months is just like line by line, every SaaS product we use. And oftentimes it's either like we're getting rid of it or downgrading it because we're not using like this tier that we're on. So you can often like, you know, lean it out and, and save money along the way. Um, can I ask how, how many SaaS apps uh, Tonkin uses? Uh, I actually don't know the number, but I can tell you that we have, uh, I think over 80 Eight zero yeah. uh, Tonkin modules within our, our, our so we use heavily our own product yeah. to um, to to kind of find you know cover some of those gaps and but we do have the core applications that everyone else have right like the most common um, you know CRM and the most common product management system and the most yeah. common communication tools because you need those right and obviously you know we're talking on Zoom right now like you need those. Um, because you do need co-application. So it's not, so those, those um, statements that I made are not about saying that cloud is, is bad or applications as a whole are bad. It's that long tail of applications yeah. that only serve, uh, you know, a small fraction of what you need is where I think um, uh, the, the, there's a bubble here and, and it's, and it's actually uh, creating a huge uh, creators in, uh, companies valuations companies actual longevity but also the cons the customers themselves their expectation of technology and what they think and how they think lever they can leverage technology is really deteriorating with every new application that they bring in and 
um, uh, from, for that reason. Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. I agree. I, I want to go back a, a question about the uh, like people first process design in that stat of the, the two, just over two hours of uh, value hours that an average person works. Uh, do you have any data either, you know, from customers, your own internal data um, that shows how many value or productive hours an average person works after implementing Tonkin and some of its modules? Um, we have, we do have some ROI cases we had with, with big, com- with one of some of our big companies. Uh, one of them, uh, described, um, 400% in productivity, um, increasing productivity for the team and that they valued in, uh, uh, about a million dollars in the first year of return. Um, and what I think was interesting is that, um, when you think about, what what type of productivity so like you know what are actually is been taking um in a traditional sort of software and enterprise you would think about productivity in, in the sense of time and tasks saved so instead of a person do this this task um you know a, a machine does it but because our process the process that we help with are actually human centric then we're all about keeping the human in the loop and not because you can't actually take all of what the human does. You only want to take the, um, the non, the low value work, right? So how, how do you measure that? Uh, and, and, and funny enough, a big part of the productivity is actually, um, thanks to Tonkin that you don't have to change things that shouldn't be changed. So in a way, one of the processes, um, was the fact that, you know, there was external, providers involved, internal parties involved as part of this process, and then an internal team that had to sort of coordinate and, you know, um, um, make sure that everything works and and back and forth. And what was interesting is that when they brought Tonkin is in, they replaced that team work, all the manual work of, of that internal team, and were able to obviously return time from, from their perspective, but more importantly, they didn't have to change any of the behavior of the internal um, stakeholders and the external stakeholders, which meant time to value was immediate. You didn't have to train anyone on this new thing to get the, the process efficiency. And that's, again, that's like a, like a, like a little bit of a mind shift of better uh, is not always new. You know what I mean? It's not only always different it's different on the right places. Yeah. Right? You don't have to change the entire thing to get better. You can change parts of it and keep the, the parts that are good. Cause sometimes um, let's say training the external providers on your new process, that's just not doable. So you're going to spend, you know, a year trying to do that and you still gonna have people that are not going to comply. And so you're gonna never see the ROI of the improvement that you were trying to do. And so that concept, again, going back to the people first and going back to sort of like working with existing stuff and, and improving them versus bringing a new app, right? On that no new apps concept is really, it, it's really the core of this new way of thinking um, of leveraging the existence and not creating something new every time. Yeah. So, uh, so one thing I want, you sort of answered it in a way, but how do you, how does one measure, uh, like an employee's, um, you know, 
positive or like high value hours? So there's the, there's the obvious outcome one, right? So like, if we go back to the example of the contract man, contract turnaround time. So, you know, it used to take you on average five times, five days to handle an NDA request. And now it takes minutes. That's an easy, that's an easy measure on the impact of the people that wait for this NDA too. Right. Um, but then on top of that, there's this sort of, um, personal, I guess, uh, focus question, you know, how do you measure how focused people are, you know, versus how they were before. And so there, there are, by the way, tools that allow you to do that. So process mining type of tools that can literally count the clicks that people do before and after, um, you know, so there's plenty of those and, and we actually are partnering with few, uh, soon, uh, which is exciting, but the very simple answer is, um, is, is qualitatively serving. And it's amazing how just like, you know, in the customer facing world, we got used to the concept of NPS, right? Net promoter score, like whether someone, a user of your, or your service is happy or not, whether they recommend it and so on. That can be done internally too. And literally trying to gauge what is the, um, satisfaction that people have from a certain process or, or a certain area of the work. And you'll find great insight just by asking. Yeah, no, that, that's a great answer. Thanks so much. Um, another interesting point that, that, that you talk about is, is the sort of the rise of operations teams and, you know, coming from, uh, yourself, someone who's just raised that 24 million in series A, you know, you assume a lot of that's going to go into growth and hiring people. You you don't often hear about companies hiring people for, for operations and operational stuff. So, so what do you mean by um, just the rise in in operations? I think that exactly, that's exact statement is something that is is changing. So I think you're right. I think a few years ago, um, hiring for an operation role, would have come later, you know, you have a big sales team and then you hire sales operation and you have a big, um, HR team and then you, you hire for talent operations and so on. But I think this is changing. Um, you know, even on the engineering side, you know, DevOps, um, and sales ops, to be honest, are both roles that existed for at least 10 years. Um, but the, the timing of when you hire them, the perception of, of their importance, I think is, is just a, it's a mythier type of like growth where it was, you know, five years ago and where it is today, more and more people understand that hiring for business operations across the, the different departments is critical for you to actually handle um, your growth in a, in a way that, um, that is efficient because if you don't, then you're actually spending your resources, which are very value, very, very expensive and, 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 and high importance in, especially the beginning, uh, on the wrong things. And again, I think, you know, sales and, and develop and, and developers are notoriously known to be expensive resources. And I think that's why, they were the first one to have those roles. 
But if, uh, if an, an engineer needs to set up environments all day long, uh, that's just a waste of time. Um, that is very, very impactful on the business. If sales person needs to update, you know, need to sort of like worry about how to update things in the CRM and you don't have someone to think about how to make the process more efficient and more fluid, um, then again, you hire this team to sell and what they're doing is actually spending time on low value work. So in a way, operation teams are the, in my mind, um, the potential heroes of this story or, or this future that I'm trying to paint um, because they're, they're the ones that are assigned with this task of figuring out what's not working in the current process, how can it be better? And if they can design the solution for that to be people first, and if they can leverage technology in a way that, um, that would enable them to actually create solutions that scale, then we'll find, uh, th- then they'll become the catalyzator and the X factor to how we get you know, to that future. And so the rise of, of operation teams is something I am encouraging and, 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 you know, and, and pushing for, but it, it happens regardless to us. It's just across the world, I think efficiency is no longer just productivity and efficiency is no longer something you only do when you're very big. Um, companies in all sizes understand that scaling is more than just growing in the number of people. It's, it's getting more out of the people and uh and operation teams are the ones that are assigned to do that yeah i love that um great answer and you sort of uh answered uh what i wanted to ask next uh, i think a, like an operation person or operations team is not very easily defined by most because like you said you know when you're looking to hire it's always sales first developers and then you sort of bring on an operations person after so it's one of those that are um could be mean different things to many people but uh, in your view, like, how would you define, like, what would make a good operations, uh, you know, manager or person in operations? What kind of traits, characteristics, like, you know, what would they do on a day-to-day? Yeah, I think it's not that different than an architect in a way. Um, you need to understand the fundamentals of the business unit you're in, but you also need to have, like, a, like a more general purview of how to design um, solutions and how to how how to um, mitigate problems and and uh, limitations, right? So uh, I, I I believe that this is actually going to be a, a super cool um, job, you know, for new newly you know graduates in 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 the near term future to actually look at. Um, and the more, again, uh, it's kind of where we're pushing, we're talking about the more technology would be accessible to them, the more impact and faster impact they'll be able to do. But their very core capability is really look at the current state of anything, any team and any business and understand what's available and what's, what's working and what's not working, what are the requirements, and then come up with being imaginative and creative about what is the solution to enable the most. Uh, you know, the funny part is that we're talking about this as a theoretical thing, but in, um, in industrial uh, areas, in, you know, in a factory floor, this has been like that for a long time. Um, there was a time 
in history that you didn't have an assembly line, right? The factory floor was just a group of stations and some stations were very manual and some, some station had machine. Uh, but the work of the factory floor was really uh, a person, you know, the operation person was just like a person with a yellow vest yelling, <laughs> right? And then your process was was printed on the wall, <laughs> you know, or as a check a checkbox on a, on a notebook. And then Henry Ford and others, you know, came with that assembly line concept and really um, flipped how we think about uh, factory and how we think about optimizing it. So you still have stations of work that are some manual and some machines, but now you have something that actually orchestrates that process and trend. And what it does is that now the operation manager there are no longer called operation or flow manager. Now they're called mechanical engineers, <laughs> you know, because they're actually looking at an assembly line and they're thinking about how to improve it, how to get higher throughput, how to optimize each part to uh, yield the, the the best results, and that's that's take that analogy and put it in our you know an enterprise world, and you realize that it's not that different. Um, it's it's really about how do you optimize the process and how do you orchestrate it. Um, and what we're trying to do with Tonkin is to allow enable that assembly line concept um, in the software, but it's up to the operation team to actually use that in a way that um, that is thoughtful and creative and iterative to um, to extract the best out of every individual and every part of the machine. Yeah, it makes makes complete sense. I love that. Um, Sagi, I, I do want to be mindful of your time. I, I know we're definitely cutting it short, but I do end off each chat with what I call the Founders Three. Uh, three uh, heavy-hitting questions. <laughs> Um, all right. Num- number one, your favorite business book. Uh, the hard things about hard things, the hard things about hard things. Nice. Um, number two, your favorite vacation spot. My sofa. <laughs> nice. Good answer. I-, I believe that the only opposite of work is idleness. If you have to go somewhere and you have to, you know, plan for it and all that stuff, then it's actually just a different type of work. So to actually get good uh, vacation time, I just, uh, I'll prefer to do nothing. <laughs> That's a very uh, enlightened way of, uh, of looking at it. It makes sense. Um, and lastly, uh, Sagi, if you can go back, what's the one thing you wish you knew when you were just starting out in business? Um, I, you know, it's obvious and a lot of people talk about timing as the most important success factor for companies, but I think being more, um, questioning more how, where are you at with your idea and your perspective of the world and where the world as is at. And, you know, by definition, if you create something new, you're ahead of the curve but how ahead of your curve are you is actually really, really critical in, in the tactics of how you're going to execute. And I think all of the you know, twists and turns we had to do was, and still today, I still believe that's true, is that uh, we're probably thinking that the market is more ahead than it actually is. 
and it's always a catch up, but, but, you know, being very true to yourself of what is that gap, um, is very critical to, to be able to handle it. Love it. Love it. Very good. Great way to, to cap this off. Um, so thank you so much. I'm so glad we're able to connect. This was a very, uh, informative conversation. I think a, a lot of people are going to get a ton of value. So, uh, thank you so, so much. Really appreciate the time. Awesome. Well, that was my, um, really my, my pleasure. And thank you for the great questions, man. Amazing. I hope we can do this again sometime and, uh, best of luck with everything. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, I would love to hear it. Be sure to check out founderviews.com for my latest posts and episodes on my journey with everything SaaS, business, and startups. Talk to you later. Peace.